Well, good morning, everybody. Okay, that's a nine o'clock good morning. Let's do it again. Good morning. morning. It's a real privilege to be with you. As you can tell, I'm not from around here. I live in Minneapolis. And and it has been wonderful. It's been wonderful to spend a weekend with... I'm not hungry because I have been fed so well. We could say that spiritual. I don't mean it in that way. I just eat a lot. And it has been glorious. You guys do food. Um, That's not the deepest thing I could share, but I feel I should at least begin. Um, Thank you to Chrissy, particularly for stalking me for the last few months now. It's been a deep joy. Um, And and your women are awesome, by the way. I just have to say that now. It was so amazing to be with you on Friday night as well. Um, By way of introductions, yes, I live in Minneapolis. Oh, yes, I'm a Brit. I'm born and raised in London. I'm Nigerian. I'm a Yoruba Nigerian as well. Can be all of those things all at once. Um, and I've lived in the States for a long time, 2018, something around those years. Um, I am married to a guy called Chris, who's five years younger, because why not? And, um, <laughs> and I was, I was going to tell you what he does for a living, but I'm really not sure what it is, and it's kind of too late to ask now. It's a little bit late for that. Um, I have two daughters, amazing girls, um, a senior and a sophomore who are volleyball players, swimmers, and really into spending my money, every bit of it. Um, And also world domination. The combination is really expensive. Um, But they're fantastic. And uh, I'm thinking if there's anything that That'll do. Oh, I love Target. I just thought I'd share that because this weekend has been a bit like being at home, hanging out with a group of friends on a Friday night. Last night, did a little bit of laundry, did a late night trip to Target to get things that I needed, and um, it was glorious. Anyway, that's not what you're here for, but I thought I should, it's rude to not introduce yourself properly. That's the English and the Nigerian within. Feel I should do an intro. Anyway, I don't know how these past few years have been for you, beloved. I don't know whether they have felt fun or delightful anywhere, um, but I'm, I'm someone who's really into New Year. Um, my family have always really been into you. We make a thing of it in some way. And so as, t- as 2020 was approaching, I'm like, you know, you had all that kind of 2020 vision and you do your vision boards and you might as well have just set fire to it because what was the point <laughs> on that front? Um, terrible, terrible. I had this book come out called Ready to Rise and it was released in April 2020 when you couldn't rise and leave your house. So that was that. Over. Um, and then I, so I thought, oh, maybe, maybe by the end of 2020 we'll know what we're doing, where we're going with this thing. And 2021 happened. Well, that wasn't better, was it? No, it was not. And so as 2020 began to come our way, As New Year's Eve came, I I thought, before you enter my life, 2022, will you be the sane member of the 20s family? Or will you be the one that looks good but has a freak flag? I need to know in advance. I have to be honest, the freak flag, that's what it was. So I'm not even approaching, I'm not even approaching 2023 now with any expectations. But what I have... um, learned as I have looked in the Bible over, the, over those years is that God always seemed to call his people in times of turbulence and chaos, that God was always moving, that he was not limited by the crazy that was happening all around. And because it seems this era is not going to be neatly tied up with a beautiful kind bow, I'm reminded that it's time for us to look again at how God would reset our lives in the middle of all of these circumstances. I don't know what these years have been for you, 
but it seems like globally it has been one of devastating pain, of incredible struggle, of desperate loss, where it's harder to get up every time you get knocked down. I remember one of my prayer times in 2020 was, Lord, do you mind if I just get in the fetal position? Because there was nothing else to do, everything else was gone, and I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed, and then I thought, okay, and now we're done. And then sobbed and sobbed and sobbed, because there was nothing else but grief. Grief seemed to be the, the air that I breathed and the place that I swam in. And so what does it look like for God to meet us in this moment, in this space, in this place, and us to walk with him again? And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read a story where Jesus um, resets his disciples in the middle of a challenging environment. And although we read the Bible, I really do believe the Bible reads us, speaks to us, challenges, um, guides us. And so that's what we'll look at today. But before that, let me set the scene. I'm gonna be reading from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. Unless I get it wrong, then it'll be somewhere else. Um, <laughs> I, just, I just like to warn people <laughs> about what may happen at any given moment. Um, I'm gonna be reading from there. Um, I think it's the NIV version, um, but let me set the scene. So Jesus has been doing his, being himself with lots of powerful ministry. He's just fed 4,000 families and yet he's had lots of pushback and challenges from the leaders of his day. And so he goes with his disciples on retreat to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, I don't know what you expect when you go on retreat. What a retreat is for you. I like to think somebody else is cooking and my food is received still hot. One thing on retreat. I, I would like a spa to be involved. I would like some food from somebody else's farm to my table with the kind of food that speeds up your metabolism. I'm still in search of that, but anyway. That's, but that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping for some time off. I'm hoping for beautiful environments. I'm hoping for maybe a target around the corner just if I need to casually peruse. Things like that. Not Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of Galilee and it is surrounded by pagan and Roman temples. In that environment um, where pe people being prostituted in the temples of an act of as an act of worship is rife, saturating the entire environment. You see, Caesarea Philippi represented all that was considered base in society, all that was considered depraved in society. That was where they went on retreat. Yay! And um, right at the heart of it is a cave, which was the source of the Jordan River. And, as that, and in that cave, from all these different temples, sacrifices were thrown in, whatever was being sacrificed as their acts of worship. And that area was known as the Gates of hell, or the gates of Hades. With that in mind, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19-ish. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In this moment, Peter and the disciples and everybody listening have a bit of a reset moment. In this retreat space, in this pulling away, before they advance again, because we retreat to advance, there's a reset that's going on here. And Jesus simply asks a question, gives a new name, and a set of keys. And so what I wanna do in the short time we have together is us go on that journey, the same journey that the disciples then did, we as disciples, followers of Jesus, will do again. Jesus is asking us a question, offers us a new name, and places in each and every one of our hands a set of keys. So the question, who do you say I am? It's an important question. Who do you say Jesus is? In the heart of Caesarea Philippi, in the face of the gates of hell, the worst possible place, frankly, Jesus says to the disciples, who am I? And it's not because he doesn't know. He's not insecure. It's not like I need some encouragement right now. That is not what is happening. When Jesus is asking a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer, but he's drawing something out of his people. It's a key moment because Peter has got past the rumours, he's got past the impressions, he's got past all of this stuff and he identifies and says, you're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one the prophet spoke of. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the one who will change the course of human history. It all begins and ends with you. That's who you are. It's an incredible revelation. The people of God have been waiting and waiting and waiting and longing for the one who would deliver them and reset the course of things. And Peter gets it. Peter sees it. It's an important question who we think Jesus is because it defines how we live. Um, I went to college in a city called Sheffield in England and at that time, back in the 90s, what a joyous time that was. <laughs> Everything spice. Um, it's a good one that you just gotta let it run. Um, <laughs> In the, <laughs> I must not distract myself. In this, in um, the nineties, anyway, my friend said um, at this, she was having a tough time. This, this city in Sheffield, two percent would be found in church on a Sunday, which is either a big problem or a really big opportunity, depending on your perspective that day. But two percent, the average size church may have been around thirty people back then. And my friend is having a tough time. She's having a tough time being a believer. And she says this, she goes, you know what? I'm sick of this Christian thing. I'm tired of it because I was told in my youth group and I was told that when you followed Jesus and when you believed in Jesus, all your dreams came true. I was told that when you believe in Jesus, you would become a really happy person. It was gonna be really wonderful and everything was gonna be amazing. It is not amazing. It is not amazing. Someone told me that this is what Jesus was like and I'm done. And I remember saying to her, I goes, oh honey, that was Disney, that wasn't Jesus. It wasn't Jesus, it wasn't Jesus. But she'd been told. I think that in the enthusiasm of trying to get the numbers in, 
She had been given an interesting picture and it's important that we know who Jesus is. So we've got to ask the question, who do you say Jesus is? Because if you know him as your friend, you also know him as your king. If you know him as your king, do you realize he's a friend? You see, we don't live beyond what we believe to be true. So if he's your friend, he comes and hangs with you, but can he tell you what to do? If he's your Lord, you know to surrender, but do you know he's interested in the details of your life? Do you know his name? Do you know that he's the representation of the Father? So when Hagar, back in Genesis, says, you are the God who sees me, and the word in the Hebrew to see means not just to observe I'm there, but is interested in my life and rises to do something about it. Do you expect that of Jesus too? That he sees you? Or that he's your provider? Or that he's your deliverer? That he's mighty, wonderful counsellor? Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who do you say Jesus is? It's a hugely important question, isn't it? And so Jesus is asking his disciples, even though they've journeyed with him, even though they've seen him do miracles and amazing things, to remind themselves. And I wanna invite each and every one of us. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know the life he led? Do you know the cross he died on? Do you know he did it for you? Do you know his character? The kind of God who would overturn the things that were wrong in society. The one who would leave the splendour of heaven and come to earth because he believed your life was worth redeeming. Yeah, another thing about Jesus, he's a redeemer. Buys back what has been lost. Who we say Jesus is matters. And I wonder how that's been affected in the face of our own personal gates of hell. Jesus was quite, it was quite important the location Jesus chose to ask that question. It's one thing saying, who do you think Jesus is when the bread and the food is flowing in the midst of feeding 5,000 families? It's another asking who Jesus is in the face of terror and awfulness and all the horrible things in society. I wonder if any of our pictures of Jesus have changed over these past few years. Whether the disappointment and the struggle and the pain has made us wonder whether Jesus is as effective as we thought he was. Whether we feel like, hold on Jesus, I thought there was a bit more Disney in you. I thought I was living in the happiest place on earth. And it's really unhappy and it's not changing. Are you still here? Are you still Lord? Are you still interested? Do you still see? Who do you say Jesus is? Well, Peter, Peter always being the one who has something to say. Um, Pick me, choose me, I know, I know who you are, I know who you are, I know who you are. I love Peter because I am like Peter. (laughs) He has this moment and Jesus responds. And, um, and at first glance, it just feels a little weird, if I'm honest. I didn't grow up in a Christian home as such. My family does religion, just a lot of them. Um, and so I'm like, great, so he gets a name. Wonderful. But let's dive in a little. In response to what happens, Peter say, Jesus says this, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades, will not overcome it. The, word, the name Peter, we know he's known as Simon up until this point. The name Peter in the Greek is Petros, meaning little rock or pebble or stone. 
And as we've already sung earlier and read earlier, when we talk about God, one of the names of God is that He's a rock. Um, Again, in the Greek is Petra, a big rock, um, a boulder. And what's happening here is a moment of covenant. What we see in the Scriptures here is a covenant exchange. And it's a covenant exchange that Peter would have known about because we see it with Abraham. We see it with all of God's people all the way through. And what happened when a covenant was made is that it was made between a stronger party and a weaker party. The stronger party would take the initiative. And they'd enter into this relationship. In Abraham's time, we saw a heifer being cut in half. It doesn't sound the tidiest moment. For the presence of God. But anyway, I'm like, God, why so messy though? Anyway, cuts it, splits it, corridor of blood all the way through the middle. God on one side, Abraham in that case on the other side, and they exchange places. But what happens in this covenant moment is that for the weaker person, the weaker one in the party, they have all their debts cancelled. Their old identity is gone. All their weaknesses are dead. They're dead in the blood. The stronger party, the stronger covenant partner welcomes you protects you, provides for you, deals with your enemies, blesses you with a new life. It's always marked by a covenant scar. It used to be on the heel of the wrist. And now that weaker person in that covenant arrangement has all the attributes of the stronger partner now. They have access to all the stronger partner can give them. And they're giving a new name to tell you not who you are, but whose you are, who you belong to. Who does Peter belong to now? In the face of the gates of hell, who does Peter belong to now? And so Jesus gives Peter a new name, a new identity, and he has access to all the benefits of heaven. All that he sees in Jesus, his stronger covenant partner. And as we think about it, it's not too much to recognise what's happening here and what this foreshadows. Because Jesus builds a new covenant, a new arrangement. This time the corridor of blood is not a messy cow being split in half, it's his own life, his own blood. And those debts are now cancelled in the blood. That old identity, in the blood. All that they used to be, in the blood. Because of the cross. It's why we see in the New Testament again and again about being in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. They're a new creation. It's all the language of covenant here saying, this is what happens in relationship with me. This is the kind of revolution I bring in your life. And it's marked by a name. Such a small thing to highlight such an incredible work. But what does that mean for you and I today? I wonder the things that have named you this past few years. Names are really important in the Bible. And in many cultures of the world today, a name doesn't just reflect a designation of some kind or your favourite phrase, but it talks of your identity, your character, your personality. My, um, I'm in a multiracial family, so my children have English names. They have Scottish names because my husband was born in Scotland. They have Yoruba names because we are Nigerians. They have names that we pick because we just like the sound of them. They have names which tell the story of their birth and the miracles that they were. They have a lot of names but it says who they are. So that whenever they, whenever they get confused, they'll see their history, their story and their names. I wonder what's named you and rewritten your story. Um, in Naomi's case, in the book of Ruth, she comes back from a terrible time and, and they say, oh, Naomi, it's good to see you. Naomi means pleasant. And she says, don't call me that, call me Mara, which means bitter. 
Call me bitter because God's hand has been against me. She must have been so much fun to be around. (laughs) But I wonder whether that's our story. Whether you say, honestly, Team Mara. (laughs) That's where I'm at. That's my name now. Call me disappointed. Call me bitter. Call me frustrated. Call me tired. Call me sick and tired of being sick and tired. Call me desperate. Wherever you're, whatever's named you in these past few years or long before, your covenant partner is still here telling a new story. Whatever has damaged you, where the guilt and the shame of the things that you're not really proud of that you may have thought, said and done still stalk you. Again, according to this covenant relationship, they're dead in the blood. You get a new beginning. Do you know you get a new beginning or are you trying to overcompensate for the person you used to be? Because what we see here, even in this small thing of a name change, is that God is actively moving to restore and transform lives. Do you know that Jesus? That Jesus, where we see in the Bible where it says the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and I. That the Spirit of God who is working all these things out is working in you and I. Or are we carrying the debts and the old identity and our past stories? Sometimes it's real hard to get past your past, isn't it? Are we dragging all of those things in week in, week out? Where we've decided coping for Jesus is better than being freed by Jesus. Christians are so great at lying, aren't they? We're so good. How am I? How are you? I'm tired. You haven't slept for six years, really. I'm tired. How are you? God's still on his throne. God knows where he is, folks. He ain't lost. God's like, God's still on his throne. No, how are you? How's it going? How's family life going? Well, actually, I hate my boss and I dream about the things that could go wrong. And I'm happy that way. And actually, we're saying, well, you know... How are you? I'm worried. And, all, and my world is crashing in on me. And we just say, fine, instead. Or, I'm good. Or, okay. <laughs> and your covenant partner wants to break into every single one of those things. And rename your life. Will you let him? Will you invite him? Because he is not done with your story. And the last point that we see here. There's so much we could go into on any of those things, isn't there? But we don't have that much time, so we're gonna be quick. So we see he gives him a new name, a new identity, a reflection of the covenant relationship he's now entered into. But then he does this other thing. He gives him some keys and he says this, Jesus says this, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's a bit of an odd moment, really. But it's a wonderful moment as well, because in the Bible, um, keys are a symbol of God's authority. (laughs) And there's something phenomenal happening here. He has given him a new identity, but he's also resetting his purpose. You see, the kingdom of God is not a geographical place. In the word in the Greek is basileia and is in some ways better translated kingship, wherever God's rule is happening. God, God ruling, God moving. Do you wanna see what the kingdom looks like? Look at the gospels. 
Forgiveness happens when you see the kingdom of God on the move. If you wanna know what the kingdom of heaven is like, look at how Jesus lived. We see mercy, we see healing, we see restoration, we see deliverance from evil, we see a message of good news, we see the untouchables being touched, we see the people who are acceptable to hate being radically loved, people who were far from God, who tried for years to earn their way into God's good books, being given grace and mercy and compassion. That's what you see when you see the kingdom of God on the move. That's what happens when the king is in charge. You see, earthly power for all our temptations towards it has nothing on kingdom of God power. And yet so often we hope that maybe if a vote goes a particular way or status or um, earthly power, that that will fix our lives. And the past few years have shown us we only had the illusion of control, really. But the power of God what God can do. And then, and then God himself in Jesus hands it over to a human being and says, have at it. And we see it again and again in the early church. And so Peter in the times to come, and we know Peter messes up, but, but we see Peter in the times to come preach a message of good news and 3,000 are saved. We see everyday men and women who have jobs. You know, most of the people in the Bible had jobs. You know, Luke really was a doctor. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't like the special ones. People really had jobs. And in those jobs, they were walking, talking overflows of the kingdom of heaven. Where God moved in and through the everyday of their life, where their cities were turned upside down because God was moving through them. And so we have Stephen, the first martyr who is a waiter, and Paul and Priscilla and Aquila making tents, and Eunice and Lois, who were a grandmother and mother who nurtured Timothy. These people who are imbued with kingdom purpose, saying that whole thing about your kingdom come and your will being done being an actual thing in their society. And it changed everything because it meant a meal was more than a meal and a job was more than a job as soon as Jesus got involved by the power of the Spirit. What does that mean for you and I? I wonder if the kingdom just feels real far away. I have a confession to make. (laughs) So many actually, but we only got time for one. the other day, and when I say the other day, I mean last week, I was talking to my mate Colette. We go walking to save our families' lives. Um, <laughs> just got to vent it somewhere. And um, we were walking, and she'd had a damaged knee. Did I ask if I could tell the... Oh, I'll tell her after. Anyway, um, she had damaged her knee, and she was getting physical therapy and all that kind of stuff. And I thought... I think I kind of went into autopilot and said, okay, we just need to pray. And I'm like, Lord Jesus, could you fix it? Because we're walking, and our kids' lives are saved this way and our spouses and all that. So could you, you know, heal the knee? Um, Anyway, I saw her about a week, I'm not good at praying. I should have said that before, shouldn't I? Whoopsie. Anyway, um, (laughs) so I I saw her on Saturday and she said, Joe, my knee has been completely healed. Completely healed. And I'm like, what? (laughs) And she's like, physical, she goes, I don't even need physical therapy anymore. And she just starts moving her leg around and I'm like, okay. And you know what shocked me most is that I was shocked. I was shocked and I thought, oh my gosh, I have become so defined by these days. I have prayed for many people where it's gone the other way, folks, where things didn't work out, where there was no neat bow and no neat ending and I had got used to expecting to be disappointed. 
I was, I was used to expecting God not to move, but him be kind anyway. Ever been there? Ever got stuck there? <laughs> and yet these keys are in our hands. I wonder what God could do. And so I wanna ask you, maybe you too have put your keys down because it just got too disappointing. Is it time to pick up your keys and see? Jesus said in John 5, 19, I only do what I see the Father doing. Are you watching what the Father's doing? Are you available to what the King wants to do in and through you at work, at home, as a volunteer, in your neighbourhood, in your city? Or have we just thought it's too bad? Too much has happened. If that's where you're at, I get you. I live in Minneapolis. I get you. But is God done with our cities? Can the King of Kings do something in the face of the gates of hell? And if he can, are we available? I will end with one story and then I really promise we'll end, end. This was a number of years ago. Um, I was just about to get married um, and I was going to get my nails done because I was just about to get married and um, special occasion. <laughs> and, uh, and I was talking to the, the woman who was doing my nails and we were talking about how I met my husband and I was talking to her about the nine-year sabbatical that God imposed on my life and dating and how happy I wasn't about that and, um, and, and how God had come through and I was marrying this guy and everything. And we were chatting and, and again, I want to remind you, Sheffield, 2% of people go to church on a Sunday. People don't believe in God. It's not like they're angry. They just don't care. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, and then she says to me, whilst doing my nails, she goes, do you believe in evil spirits? And there's a little prayer from my heart that goes up to heaven. And I say, Father, not today. <laughs> this is my day. I'm not saying I'm a bridezilla. I'm just saying I want it to go smoothly. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I do, because I can't lie. Although I hadn't told her I worked in the church across the street, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> and, and she's like, and she's like, oh, do you believe they really exist? And I thought, oh God, no, please no, please no. And I said, yeah, I believe they exist. And I didn't want to ask her why she asked, so I didn't ask her. And she goes, because I think there's one in my house. And I thought, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. And I said, how do you know there's one in your house? Again, someone who doesn't do church, who doesn't do God, who doesn't believe in any of these things. She said, things are flying off my walls. There's a cold presence and it's weird. Well, you know, okay, fine. I mean, something's not right, let's be clear. And, and she said, so I've moved out. I've moved out and I'm living with my friends and I can't, do, I can't walk back into my house again. And um, I don't know, I think it was the money that got to me. I think it was, I wanna tell you it was my heart for a broken city and God's love and his compassion and call. It was the fact that she was paying for that house. And so I said, are you, you own this house? She goes, yeah. And I goes, you're paying a mortgage? She said, yeah. And she looked at me like I was a weirdo because I kind of am. And I said, are you paying a mortgage for a demon to live in your house? And she's like, well, I guess so. And I said, okay, okay, done. I said, I am a Christian. <laughs> and I work across the street. I'm a Christian. And I believe that this is not what God has for you. And I think we need to pray because she was about to pay someone to get rid of the thing. I'm like, what happened to in the name of Jesus? Do you know what I'm saying? Anyway, so I was annoyed at this point. And I goes, we need to pray this thing, get out of your house so you can have your life and move back in. And she's like, oh, I've never had anybody pray with me before. This is really exciting. And my friend who, who was my best woman, I goes, we're gonna pray that this demon gets out of her house. Because we're all weird by that point. And she said, um, 
what should I do? How do I pray? And I said, look, I'm going to pray for you. You just do my nails. <laughs> just do my nails. Do my nails. And so we prayed really quick. And then as I began to pray, she goes, oh, whilst you're there, could you pray and meet somebody? I'm like, well, we're already in the weird zone, so let's do the whole thing. Let's go, let's go. So we prayed really simply, really easily, just quietly. Lord, you see this woman's life. Would you have mercy? Would you cast this thing out in the name of Jesus? And also, would you get her to meet somebody? Amen. I get married. Of course, I forget about her because I'd forgotten. But I have this situation with my eyebrows. that If left unattended, they fuse, turn into a caterpillar, crawl off my face. So had to do something. And so I go in, I, I go into the salon and she comes up to me and she goes, it's gone. I'm like, no, it isn't. It's still there. It's still there. And she goes, no, the demon has gone. I'm like, because oh, I was shocked again. I was shocked again because what do you mean it's gone? And she's like, the, the, that cold, evil presence is gone. Nothing is flying off the walls anymore. It is a place of peace. The entire atmosphere has changed. The, there's a, I feel safe in there. And, she, and then she goes, and I met somebody. <laughs> and I'm like, Jesus, nine years, three weeks, what? What is going on? And I went home and I said to Chris, I said, hey, um, I feel a new mission field has opened up and we need to invest in it in many ways. So I may need some treatments to go on so I can dis so I can follow what the Lord is doing in this neighborhood. <laughs> and we met for months and months and months until I moved to the States and her and her boyfriend were about to move in and she said, I, she goes, I want you to know, I know God did this. And I've said to him that we will have to get ourselves to church one day and acknowledge what God has done. Are you available, friends? Or have you become expectant on things not happening? Have you given up on your city because it's just too hard and it's just too miserable? And it's just been so tough. I want to say wherever you're at, your Redeemer lives. Have you lost your keys? Did you lose your way? Did you lose sight of what the King is doing? Did you expect Disney and found that it was a horror movie instead? <laughs> Awkward. Has your identity been broken down? Have you been renamed by, the, by these circumstances? May I remind you that God is not done. God is not finished. God is still moving. God is still moving in the darkest parts and even in the face of the gates of hell, God will come. But will we be there? Will we be there? And so as I actually, for real, close this time, I would like to pray for us. I want to, and just take a moment to pray, simply this. For those of, I want to pray about us knowing who Jesus is again. I want to pray that we would know that he is our rock and that, um, that we live into the fullness of our covenant identity. And I want to pray that each of us, wherever we are spaced, whether it's Nike, whether it's Target, whether it's our community, whether, wherever we are living and leading, that we would pick up our keys and see the King come. May I pray with you? Okay, let's pray together. Father God, I want to thank you for this wonderful community. I thank you for their faithfulness for many years now. I thank you, Lord, that they have been a light and they have shown you to the city. But Lord, you see this city needs you again. So Lord, I pray this, Lord, for everyone here that we would know who you are 
that we would know the love of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the power of Jesus, that we would know you, Jesus. Give us a fresh revelation of who you are, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would know the power of your covenant identity impacting our identity, that the things that have named us would be, the power over those things would be broken by the power of your spirit. Lord, that those of us who've been named by these past few years, who get up in different ways to how we used to, Lord, help us, Jesus. Come deliver us, Jesus. Come heal us, Jesus. Restore us. And Lord, I pray, I pray that we would pick up our keys. Pick up our keys for this city, for where we work, for where we lead, for where we're at home. And that we would see what the Father is doing and be available for what you wanna do. So that Lord, as you cry out over the city, whom shall I send? That each of us, no matter what age and stage of every ethnicity and marital status, that we would cry, here am I, send me. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus, for your glory and yours alone. Amen.